Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the show. That's right. It is time for Simply Real Estate with me, your host, Todd C. Slater. Yeah, you know what? I love chatting about real estate, and I got a lot to talk about this week. I've got two guests joining me. Uh, shortly, I'm going to have John, John Pasalis. He's the president of Realosophy Realty, and uh, John is just, he is an incredible analyst with numbers, breaking down what's happening, uh, even in sort of the micro neighborhood. So John's going to be joining me. He's just no stranger to the show. I've had him on before, but uh, definitely, you know, a, a noted figure in the world of real estate, especially in the GTA. And later in the hour, Dave Butler, that's right, from BM Select Butler Mortgage. Dave's going to be joining me. We're going to talk about what's going on with interest rates and what we can anticipate in the near future. So all sorts of things related to real estate. And of course, each week, I normally like to start off with a bit of a rant. But I just uh, before I do, I want to thank everybody who joined me for our webinar on Thursday evening. And uh, if you did miss it, you can go to the simpleinvestor.com. You can click on our YouTube link and you can catch uh, the uh, webinar that we did. And, you know, just to kind of recap, uh, most importantly, we do talk about what's going on in the world of real estate. Why actually, uh, and, and this was a new one for me. Um, normally my seminar, it's a little generic, you know, I try to keep it, uh, keep it light, but uh, try to drill down the numbers a little bit more. So you understand why 2021 is such a great year to be a real estate investor. You know, if I, if I kind of give you some of the Coles notes right now, it's as simple as saying, you know what, I think the outer markets are going to have a huge increase in the future with uh, the ex expansion of immigration, with the fact that our brick and mortar value in the outer markets is so low in comparison to replacement. And I know, you know, this is one of the things that we talk about all the time in the world of real estate, where we keep talking about brand new construction. You know, the amazing thing is that when we see older properties, you know, you can't discount those. You know, so many people want to turn around and say, yeah, but you got to have new, you know, how long is it going to last? And so many people look at it that way. You know, we own investment properties that are a hundred years old. People can't wait to get in. We have a, we have a waiting list for properties like this because people just love the character. They're solid. They're going to last. You keep the maintenance up, but it's amazing how people don't recognize the brick and mortar value. And you know, it's funny because at, when you are a real estate investor, and you own properties, you have to get insurance. And when the insurance company tells you that it's gotta be insured for three times what you paid for it, because they can't replace it for what you paid for it, then you look at it and say, wow, okay, that means brick and mortar is really, really inexpensive. And it is that way. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, we've got our London release going on. You know, it's about a third of the price of a Toronto brand new construction condo right now. A third, but yet you have positive cash flow. And this is the thing, this is why, Taking a look at this kind of stuff is so important when people are gauging what makes a good investment. So, you know, I just thought I'd throw that out there because, again, th these are some of the things that I did cover during the webinar. Like I said, you can go to thesimpleinvestor.com or you can always follow me on Instagram, and that is the Simple Investor One. But, you know, as everybody knows, I try to start off, you know, talking about, I think, kind of an important topic each week and what is happening in the world of real estate. One of the ones that I do hear a lot, and, you know, it seems to be, you know, obviously very, very um, prevalent in the first time home buyer market. People are trying to get in the market for the first time. Everything about how unaffordable real estate is. And so, you know, I started thinking to myself a little while ago and I started thinking to myself, okay, so, 
is real estate truly unaffordable? Or is this just going to be the way it is? Or are we going to have a massive correction? So what what amount of correction are we going to have to have for everybody to say real estate's affordable? You know, when I started doing the numbers, I went went backwards and said, well, if we went to back to the prices of 2015, does that make it affordable? Uh, 2010, does that make it affordable? I mean, how far back do we have to go before, you know, that first generation buyer says it's affordable? And this is where the problem comes in, is that, you know, affordability is basically based on timing and the times and the world economy. And so many people say, no, Todd, it's actually reflective of income, but it's not. And this is the thing, you know, real estate is its own entity. Everybody wants to beat up on it. Everybody wants to tell everybody that's got to be affordable. You know, everybody must, must have ownership. Well, part of what we see in the marketplace and we see market shifts is that where you want to be is what is actually driving the value. So if we don't have enough supply, okay, then values go up. If everybody wants to be there, values go up. So, you know, tell you what, you know, if you buy in a little town, you know, off the 401, two hours from Toronto, you is that affordable? Well, you're gonna say, well, I don't wanna live there, but it's affordable. And so this is where, you know, figuring out affordability and what people can do is so important. So. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of the notes that I saw that uh, came across my board was the fact that, you know, should parents be helping their kids out more? And when should the parents start anticipating this? So I think a lot of people think, you know, when you hear TFSA, they automatically think of university. And this was really the base for it. You know, when, when people were doing it, that was one of the reasons why people started investing in their TFSAs because they wanted to create a college university fund for their kids. So that made a lot of sense. And for the last decade, we've seen a lot of people, you know, throw money at it. And we know the fact that, you know, a lot of kids have been able to go to university for it. And it's great. So the question then, you know, remains, when do you start maybe helping them save for their first property? And, you know, I started, you know, reflecting on that. And I started thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, if you turn around, you put your money in your TFSA, or you've created, you know, some kind of university fund, you know, it, it, it's really what I would call a declining investment. And I don't mean any, you know, ill will to the kids that are getting the university uh, education. What I mean is the fact is, once you've spent it, it's gone. You know, and that's the one thing that we have to realize, we've got to realize that, you know, when we talk about RSPs, you're going to roll them up into a riff when you turn 71 and the government wants you to get rid of them. Why? Because they want the tax dollars. When you turn around and you're working with your TFSAs, unless you turn, you truly are a great investor with them, you know, it will eventually, you know, dissipate and it's gone because you've now paid for the university education. So then I started to think to myself, well, what if you know, you turned around and I'm not just saying because I'm the simple investor, but what if you bought an investment property and you sat on it for, let's say the next five, 10, 15 years. So here's what happens just so everybody knows is that when you refinance your investment property five years from now, if you've owned it for five years and if you've done it properly, you've got positive cash flow. So you're going to be paying down the mortgage. The value's gone up. You can refinance. You can take up take out a, a you know large sum of equity and guess what it's tax-free well here's the best part about it is that I have watched investors that did this 12 years ago they put their kids through university they've actually helped their kids buy their first home by refinancing their investment property now of course 
what ends up happening is after you after you refinance it, that means your debt's gone back up. And now guess what's going to happen? Your tenant's going to help you pay that back down. So you create this life cycle. And when I saw this article about, you know, when should parents start helping their kids save for a home? I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, if if parents do that and they hand the money over to the kids, then the parents don't have any money left. And so what about the parents? What if they need help when they're in their 80s or 90s? I mean, we all know that, you know, things are going to get really expensive as time goes on. You know, $100,000 today is not going to be the same 20 years from now. So what about the parents? You know, it, it's kind of one of those situations where it's like, great, we'll give it to the kids. And then when they have nothing left for themselves. So what if the parents turned around and said, well, we'll take an investment property when the time comes to help the kids with the university or for that matter, buy a home, we can refinance, take some money back out, and then we'll let it happen all over again. This was one of the things that I've tried to encourage people to do for years and years and years. And when I looked at it, I just kind of changed and put on a different hat and said, you're right. You know, it's going to be tough for kids in the future to have home ownership. But if you take a look at it right now, you know, and we talk about some of the outer markets and we start talking about investment real estate, it is affordable. The real estate's still affordable out there. You just have to find the right real estate. And if you can turn around and work with leverage, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing, then you're going to have these returns that are going to make it a lot easier for you and your family and your future. So again, you know, it's a great point. When do we, when do we help our kids? When do we step in? Well, the nice thing is, is that you're able to help them doing this, and yet you're also going to help your future, which in essence is actually helping their future. You know, I've always said that creating generational wealth is really important, and the idea that what we're going to pass down to the next generation. But we also don't want to be a burden to the generation while we're around. So how do we do that? How do you protect yourselves? These are the kind of questions that I think everybody should ask themselves. You know, we, we take a look at real estate. It's wonderful. And what we did learn during the pandemic is it's so important to have a good roof over your head. Uh, with the people that are working at home, I think they also appreciate the fact that you need a little bit more space. But ultimately, in the end, you know, there is a financial component to it. What does it do for you? And again, most people will know that, you know, their biggest asset will be their home. The fact that they'll pay down their mortgage as time goes on. But what if somebody else did it for you? And then you could utilize that to help the rest of your family as time goes on. These are the kind of things that I think up, uh, you know, sometimes about two o'clock in the morning. And a lot of people say, oh, do you only think of real estate? Well, in most cases, yes. But ultimately, I think that if we can focus on, you know, using real estate to our benefit, both for a roof over our head and on top of that, providing rental properties for people because the future is going to be very bright in the rental market just so you know home ownership is achievable it's just one of those things that you have to figure out how to do it you, you put together a plan and it will happen so that's my rant for this week you know i do like to talk about it obviously markets are your are, are looking good we've seen some stable market through the uh through the month of july numbers are out you know nothing nothing alarming uh, you know definitely you'll hear the words year over year up 11 or 17 percent sure of course it was you know what we we're just coming out of the funk in july last year you know uh month over month again just steady we're not seeing any craziness in the market we are seeing some multiple offers we know interest rates are going to stay put but you know what i'm going to let the experts talk about that as well with me so when we come back i'm going to be joined by john pasalis and um also if you uh, if you want uh go to the simpleinvestor.com find out about our latest offering we've only got a few left for our final release this 
this year. So that is thesimpleinvestor.com. You can follow me on Instagram, thesimpleinvestor1. And when we come back, I've got John Pasalis joining us. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. As I mentioned just before the break, my next guest joining me, um, definitely somebody that you want to follow. He is very, very focused on data, insight, numbers, everything to do with the GTA market. Um, he is the president of Realosophy Realty, John Pasalis. He's joined me before. And John, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure having you come on. And John, you and I haven't spoken in a little while, but maybe we could kind of do a quick recap of 2020 and what 2021 has looked like so far, you know, from the numbers. <laughs> it's been a, I mean, it's, it's been a roller coaster. I mean, 2020 was a, was a crazy market, obviously, because of, uh, of the original lockdowns and the pandemic. Um, you know, and, and when that happened, I think most people thought the market would be very sluggish. And, and as we've seen in the past 12 months, the exact opposite happened. I mean, real estate uh, has just exploded since uh, since last summer, since probably around June of 2020. And, and the market's been on fire. And, and largely, uh, the, the, you know, the outer suburban low-rise home market uh, has been the market that has been really strong. Condos were quite slow up until around the end of 2020, and then just even they uh, they rebounded pretty quickly, and it's been a pretty competitive market. One of the things that a lot of people have, you know, credited the market from rebounding is the interest rates. But, you know, you're you're on the ground. You're always taking a look at things. It seems like it's more than the interest is more than just low interest rates. It seems like people have just recognized, you know, the need to own real estate, if it's from an investment perspective or if it's a primary residence, it just seems like there was this huge, you know, come to the moment, <laughs> um, you know, going through the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. I think certainly uh, the, the biggest driver uh, was mainly people who either wanted to move to the city or were renting and then just COVID just accelerated a lot of people's home purchases. Uh, so it definitely pushed a lot of people forward. Uh, I mean, interest rates, of course, play a role. I mean, when you can get a mortgage for, you know, the low 1% range, uh, you know, it, it, of course, looks really attractive to home buyers, even those who are upsizing. I mean, all of a sudden, if you're upsizing, you know, taking an extra million dollars in debt, it's, it's not that cheap when you're paying 1.2% or 1.3%. Um, so I think it did. I think the interest rate probably triggered a move up buyers more than first-time buyers, um, and probably had a really big impact on investors because, um, you know, at the end of the day, when rates are so low, uh, you can buy even a, a poor-performing investment property, and you're you're making money off of the bank's money when your return on your property is better. So it definitely had a bit of an impact, but it, it was mainly just people you know, moving up their home purchases because of COVID. Yeah, we did see, you know, kind of a tale of two stories, you know, the condominium market, as you mentioned, it did go, you know, it did go down, we did see, you know, the rents actually drop uh, through the summer and the fall of 2020. You know, we have started to see, see some, you know, momentum come back into those marketplaces. But as we did, we did see a lot of people go into the outer markets. And, you know, if we take a look overall at the numbers throughout Ontario, a lot of the suburbs and outer markets have benefited, you know, quite substantially to the point where some of the outer markets are actually leading the GTA. Yeah, and that's the interesting part. They're, they're actually... In terms of a year-over-year -year growth in house prices, you know, City Toronto's underperforming. 
Um, you know, it's really these really far outer suburbs and, and areas that are not even suburbs anymore, like areas that are outside of the immediate GTA, uh, you know, people moving to Prince Edward County and even north of Barrie and, and Kitchener-Waterloo just because they can't afford Toronto. Uh, and a lot of these smaller cities, uh, you know, saw prices rise 30, 40 plus percent. And even, even up in cottage country, um, which is normally a pretty sluggish market. Um, and I think a lot of people in, you know, who just observe real estate uh, as an urban dweller and see multiple offers don't realize usually, usually cottages take a, a while to sell, but not, not in, in a COVID pandemic period. I mean, cottage prices just exploded. Um, and a lot of those were driven by investors who, um, just kind of saw the opportunity to rent them out uh, because, you know, people had nowhere to travel to and people were paying, you know, steep prices to rental cottages this summer. Yeah, one, you know, and there's also those people that wanted to escape the city and, you know, one of the biggest questions that was asked in cottage country, of course, was how is the Wi-Fi up there? You know, did did you have good internet service? And, you know, talking to some of the experts throughout the, the, the vacation properties, it's interesting because, you know, we, we saw such a huge uptick and, you know, I'm, I'm a cottager myself. I go, you know, I'll, I'll run up the 400. And as you mentioned, a lot of people are renting cottages more so than ever before because we, you know, we were basically locked into Ontario. And it's funny because I, I, I made a comment to my wife. I said, look, see how many canoes are on the top of these cars. Those are renters because if you're a cottage owner, <laughs> you don't move your canoe back and forth, right? So it's kind yeah. of funny, you know, I, you know, I, I, I challenge everybody. Next time you're all going up the 400 or, or out on the 401, take a look how many cars are packed. You know, those, those aren't the cottage owners. Those are the cottage renters. So, you're, you, you know, I think you nailed it. There's a lot of people that are looking at the rental aspect of it. But you know, one of, one of the comments that we've heard in the in in both you know the industries um, when we take a look at uh, the outer markets as well as cottage country, a lot of people are thinking that you know as things start to open up and a little bit of normalcy returns to Toronto, do you think we'll see the prices go down in those outer markets, or do you think that people are there to stay? You know, that's actually a really great question. I mean, I I think I think it's possible, certainly uh, in in cottage country, that you might see some decline because I think in those areas a combination of people who just decided to move out there, you may see some of those people change their minds because, I mean, unless you've lived at a, at a cottage for, for, you know, all four seasons, you don't really know what it's like to be there in the middle of winter um, and what Internet's like and, and what it's like working from there. So certainly we might see some people moving back to, uh, you know, more urban areas. But also, you know, are we going to have like an oversupply of, of cottage rentals a year from now when people can actually fly and travel? Because I don't think the demand for cottage rentals next summer is going to be what it is this summer. I think a lot of people are still in the cottage rentals because they don't want to travel. Uh, but once, you know, people feel safe to fly, I don't think people are going to be renting out cottages quite as much as they are this year. Um, you um, you were quoted in, in a report saying average GTA house prices stay at about $1.35 million since February. So, John, I know you are, you know, are excellent at drilling down numbers. Let's talk about 2021 and what we've seen. You know, we're, we're, we're fortunate because I actually think the market has had just a, a more of a natural um, you know, cooling, and I'm not going to say cooling, meaning prices going, you know, negative, but it's just been, you know, we had so much heat into the markets, you know, multiple offers going crazy. I just think it's kind of, you know, running its course and without too much government intervention, that is what we all hoped for. We didn't want the government, you know, sticking their nose in it. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, 
you know, it's kind of, uh, it, it is interesting because I've been calling, I agree with you, I mean, I've been calling the past, especially the past few months, a bit of a cool down. And it's interesting because for the average home buyer who maybe is looking at some of the competitive markets, there's still bidding wars. Like, it's still a, it's still a seller's market. Um, and, you know, for, for someone who's in the industry, you know, the idea that it's slower is that it's not as competitive. And you can kind of see that, as you mentioned, and sort of this idea that, Average prices aren't rising. You know, they've kind of plateaued for the past five to six months. Um, and, and that's just, you know, again, even though it's a competitive market, there's just some, some ceiling, I mean, some, some buyer fatigue. So there's still bidding wars, but the price acceleration isn't as crazy as it was uh, in 2020. Yeah, and I think that's a positive thing because, you know, yeah. when, you have, when you have a runaway market, then you're going to get a knee-jerk reaction from the powers to be sometimes. And they'll, they'll interfere, like, interfere like they did, you know, back in 2017 and 18 when you and I watched some numbers going crazy. You know, you throw in the stress test, you throw in the foreign buyer tax, you know, could have a huge adverse effect to a market when you try to, you know, throw so much water on it. So, you know, even though they did... Um, um, you know, change the stress test out a little in June. I still think that you know we're having more of a natural effect. But um, John, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask that you hang on uh, for a minute. We're going to go to a quick quick break. But folks, I've got John Pasalis joining me. He is the president of Realosophy Realty. And I have to tell you, if you're looking to find out, you know, d- uh, some of the data, the trends, and what the numbers are looking like in the GTA, John's your guy. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're jo- just joining me now, my uh, my guest right now is John Pasalis, and he is the president of Realosophy Realty. Um, one of the reasons why I love having John on the show, just so everybody knows, um, he's just so amazing at analyzing data, you know, and he'll you know drill it down to actually a neighborhood to find out what the numbers are like. And John, just before the break, you and I were talking about what's happening in the market, and you know, some people would say if we're still having multiple offers, we've got an overheated market. But quite frankly. Frankly, I just think it's a natural reaction to actually some of the neighborhoods that you know you are you know you know taking a hard look at. You know, it's that supply and demand. And if there's 400 buyers wanting to buy in, let's say, an area of Lee Side, and there's one listing, you're still going to have multiple offers. Yeah, exactly. And and, and that's the that's a challenge right now. I mean, a lot of people are focusing on uh, demand cooling, which it has been since March. But the, the bigger story is that. Uh, inventory has has been declining, and we're seeing fewer and fewer houses for sale. Um, and I think that's still what is keeping the market pretty competitive. Uh, but again, I think the key thing for the average buyer is that it, it's not as competitive as it was if you're bidding six or seven months ago. You know, that was that was really um, peak. You know, houses were getting 40 offers and 30 offers. I mean, right now. The houses that are getting tons of offers are certainly the, the nicest and most well-staged homes in the nicest neighborhoods, but there's a lot of houses out there that don't have offer dates anymore, and, and you can make an offer conditional on a home inspection, which was you know, impossible even three months ago. Yeah, those conditions, you know, they got in the way of of the 80 offers. So it's amazing yeah, how many exactly. people, you know, and, and, and I know you as a broker would always, you know, try to influence people to do your due diligence correctly, because if you just go haphazardly into an offer, you might get a, you know, unsettling surprise when you end up closing on your house. So um, there is something I want to talk to you about, because you, uh, you have done uh, some pretty incredible reports, the Move Smartly report, July 2021. There was, uh, you know, it's top uh, data trends 
and key stories in the real estate. But there was something I wanted to talk to you about because I think it's it's very important right now and how investors impact house prices. So you know, um, you know, we've heard and and some people wanted to start throwing that we've got a lot of speculators that are playing in this marketplace. And, you know, I, I, I have two differing opinions. I think if somebody's a speculator, I don't call them real estate investors. You know, I call them speculators. Real estate investors like to buy and hold and they're really looking at long-term ownership. But when when we take a look at, um, you know, what you've, what you've put there, you know, the more investors you have, that jacks up the prices. The higher the prices go, it can jack up the number of investors. Um, you know, there is that problem that we've got right now in the Toronto condominium market. We are looking at negative cash flow whenever we look, you know, kind of north of a $600, $700 a square foot. So, you know, is this something that we're going to see continually feed itself? You know, the new builders are coming out with some pretty crazy square footage prices. And yet it seems like, you know, the big stuff is still selling. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting market. I think it's, it's tough to make sense of if you're not... Uh, a, a very hardcore pre-construction investor. I, I mean, at the end of the day, like you said, if you're buying a condo downtown right now for a thousand dollars a square foot, uh, you're generally going to be cash flow negative if you're putting, you know, twenty twenty-five percent down. I mean, you need a pretty big down payment, and uh, and yet pre-construction condos in the core are selling for closer to say fourteen hundred dollars a square foot. So it's really, I mean, it's interesting how investors are, you know, where rents will be three or four years from now. Um, and I think investors are just buying strictly for the capital gain, which, you know, if you, if you kind of look at sort of historical real estate trends, that tends to be a, a bit of a red flag when, you know, when, you're, when your cash flow is so deeply negative uh, that you're only buying because you just expect prices to keep going up forever. Um, it's usually a red flag. I mean, it doesn't mean prices are going to fall, and I think this is what people kind of keep missing. At the end of the day, if the federal liberal government wants to accelerate immigration targets and we let in way more people than homes that we can build, then, yeah, we'll probably see prices keep going up, even from these, these incredible highs. So it's, it's tough to kind of predict how this will unfold, but certainly it's a bit of a red flag today. Yeah, and, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, with the Liberals wanting to introduce 400,000 new immigrants uh, this year, again, borders aren't open up, so that's probably not going to be a target they're going to hit. But, you know, I think I think we're going to see that pent-up demand of people wanting to immigrate into Canada. And, and as we know, most people that do come into the country first, uh, they normally rent. You know, they don't initially come in and they're not purchasing right out of the gate. Um, a lot of them do go into rental properties, which, again, puts more pressure. And, of course, if we see the return of some of the foreign students, you know, again, pressure on the rental market. So, you know, right now, I think we're kind of at the bottom of the the rental price. I think people should be mindful of that. Um, because big picture stuff, you know, we, we have to take a look real, really hard at the fact that this stuff will, uh, you know, get eaten up. I mean, you know, we did have a little bit of rental inventory left over, but I think that that, that vacancy rate is going to drop significantly over the next, you know, call it six to 12 months. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And the, the rental market right now, quite frankly, is really, really competitive, whether you're looking for condominiums downtown or like a single family three-bedroom home in the suburbs. Uh, it's very competitive to rent. Uh, they're bidding wars on rentals. Uh, and again, I think a lot of this is just, you know, a lot of people who were buyers in the market just 
hitting up or giving up, uh, hitting pause or giving up on their search and just deciding to rent, people moving back to the city. Um, so the rental market, yeah, is going to definitely be competitive for the rest of the year. We're probably going to see uh, rent prices accelerate as well. Right. And then if you were, if you were to pick some, some areas that you think are going to be, you know, maybe the biggest growers, because again, you've watched the, the market trends for years. You've, you've seen areas that are developing. You can kind of see the up and comers. Are there a few micro neighborhoods that you think we're going to see even more attraction to over the next, call it three to five years? Well, I, I think over the next three to five years, my instinct, I mean, nobody has a crystal ball, but I mean, my instinct is probably urban neighborhoods will uh, outperform. You know, we had over the past year or two where these really far suburban neighborhoods kind of were the better performers. But my instinct is we're going to have a shift back to the city. I don't believe all these stories uh, arguing that, you know, the cities are dead and and no one's going to want to be downtown. I mean, I think that's going to be short-lived and people are going to want to move to the core. So the areas that... Uh, are, are you know to keep an eye on if you're a buyer or investor tends to be the areas that are just outside of the already established areas. You know those tends to be the up and comers, the ones that are uh, you know just outside of very established neighborhoods, and those are the areas that you know buyers want to start looking at. And and you know when we when we talk about interest rates, and we can just touch on this for a second. Um, you know the Bank of Canada uh, controlling obviously the the variable rate. Um, in, in in my opinion, and listening to some of the economists and having them on the show, you know, they're saying that we're going to keep these down for a little while. You know, it's going to take a while for recovery, even if we start seeing some inflation. But, you know, we're we're basically just into stage three. You know, there's a lot that has to that has to happen to recover. Do you think interest rates are going to stay down for a little while? And you know, if they do, you know, we're hearing you know rumors that you know, they might go up by a quarter point. I don't think that's going to have a huge adverse effect on the market. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't think a quarter point or small changes are going to have a big impact. And I don't think the, the Bank of Canada is in any rush to raise rates. I mean, they, they've already been quite clear uh, that they're fine with a bit of inflation. And, you know, that's that's really what their mandate is. I mean, they're there uh, to, to kind of their monetary policies really center around uh, maintaining a certain inflation rate. And if they're fine with a higher inflation rate, they're not in a rush to raise rates. So I, I don't think we're going to see any huge changes, you know, in the next year or two, probably. Right. Well, listen, John, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Um, is uh, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you? Uh, I mean, they can follow me on Twitter. It's just John Pasalis. Um, they can shoot me an email at askjohn at movesmartly com. But yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. If they have any, uh, want to keep a trend, keep an eye on the trends in the market. Excellent. Well, listen, John, thank you so much for joining me today. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can chat soon and, and get some more updates. Having me. Excellent. Thank you. So that was John Pasalis, president and of Realosophy Realty. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to have Dave Butler join us. And we're going to get an update from Dave on what is happening in the world of mortgages. And don't forget, you can follow me on Instagram, the Simple Investor one And we'll be right back after this. And welcome back. As I mentioned just before the break, my next guest, well, you know, I, I'm going to have to say that he, he, he's becoming more of my co-host to a certain extent. Dave Butler from BM Select and Butler Mortgage. And Dave, uh, you know, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Beautiful day, of course. <laughs> 
So let's uh, let's talk about mortgages, you know, because I, I, I typically, you know, I could talk to you about your, your wakeboarding or your sea doing, but um, I, I think you're more of an expert with the mortgage field. So let's talk about what's going on right now. You know, everybody keeps thinking that... Uh, that the bank, um, you know, it's amazing because each week or each month we get the same thing. Bank Canada is staying pat on the rates, but we got a lot of doomsayers in the market saying, you wait, interest rates are going to go up. Everybody's going to lose their house. Yeah, it kind of feels like um, it's deja vu every month. Uh, every month we hear that rates are going to go up, and you and I are on the show every month saying that um, rates are staying right where they're at. And if anything, there's probably more downward pressure uh, on them. Um, I think what we're finding is the banks are uh, really going through an experience that they haven't had in a long time, which is that the, they actually are noticing um, that they're able to catch up a little bit in the summer, which is, as you and I know, is, is not, not normal. But that's also because we had just such a barn burner uh, start to the year and even the end of last year. Um, we are, you know, we can report that some of the banks that we're working with are seemingly getting some of their turnaround times um, back to a normal level. Um, you know, there was an unfortunate period there where some banks, you know, were taking us upwards of two, three, four weeks for approvals and refinance approvals. Um, but we are seeing a level of efficiency coming back. Um, but the good news is obviously rates have stood pat. And uh, a lot of Canadians are experiencing and getting to enjoy uh, these rates that are available. So I'm going to ask you a question because, you know, you brought up something in when you mentioned refinancing. And I know you deal with a lot of investor clients. And of course, you know, uh, Butler Mortgage, a lot of uh, first-time home buyers, things like that. But let, let me ask you this. I... You know, I try to advise people that if you've got a mortgage, you know, a lot of times, if you've got a lot of equity built up, some people will use a home line of credit secured on the house. And then there are those people that have the different thought. They want to roll it all into one, which is a mortgage. What do you find more people doing right now? Are they refinancing their properties or are they looking for that home line of credit to be extended on the property? It's actually a really good question. Um, it comes down to a couple different things. Um, generally speaking, if a client of ours has, let's say, a high penalty, so their penalty is seemingly a little higher than it should be, likely because maybe they were on a much higher rate before or they have a lot more time left on their mortgage, someone like that, it might make more sense to get a home equity line of credit because this way we don't have to break their first mortgage. We can simply place a home equity line of credit behind the first mortgage. However, if someone has a very low penalty, um, you know, there is definitely a savings on going on the lower rate. A lot of times we will simply do it as a refinance and take it out as a mortgage. There also becomes another thing that we have to look at, which is when will you need the funds? As an investor, I think one thing that we don't want to do is go and take out a large amount of funds, stick it in the bank, and then wait you know, six months till we find an opportunity. The reason why that's not going to be good is simply that we're paying interest now on that money that we've gone and put in the bank. We're paying on that mortgage amount. So if an investor comes to us and says, hey, Dave, you know, we've got a property that we've bought. It's closing in two months. We want to now refinance and pull money out. If the situation is there where it makes sense to do, we will actually take that out as a refinance. Why? Simply because it's going to be their new property closing in a couple of months. The new money we take out, they will only be holding on to for a short period of time. So it does make sense. But if, let's say, the client says to us, hey, 
we're not looking to buy something for six to 12 months. We just want to be ready. A lot of times we would probably move towards a home equity line of credit. So that way they're only paying interest on that money once they actually access it through the line. Yeah. One of the one of the things that um, you know we've tried to advise people is always keeping some form of current appraisal in in your hand also on your property. And if you're working with a lender, it's always good for them to have an update appraisal on your property because you know if if a market shifts and you've been able to secure a line of credit, you want to still have it. Where if you come in after the fact, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we're going to see the market shift, but you know, there's been that time. You and I went through it with in 2018 where we watched a little bit of a shift. You know, uh, prices went a little sideways on a few people, and I think they get caught out with the, you know, there's that perception. Well, my house is worth, you know, a million dollars, but now the bank says it's worth nine hundred. It seems like I just lost, you know, a hundred thousand worth of equity to play with. Yeah, I mean, it, there's, you know, at the end of the day, there's. I tell a lot of our clients, you know, if they are able to get a copy of appraisal in their possession, make sure you do it. It's nice to have them. It's always nice to be able to show the new appraiser, let's say, that the bank may send that you have an older appraisal at this amount. Um, It never hurts to have extra data. Um, And I always tell people as well, I mean, I think you and I have even talked about this with some of our other customers and clients over the years, is, is if you know of sales in your area, that are of houses as similar to yours. Make sure you note that, that, you know, a lot of times clients will let us know, hey, my neighbor just sold for X amount of dollars. We make sure that the appraiser knows that because one thing a lot of people don't realize is that appraisals are, especially residential appraisals, they are predicated simply on other sales that are matching your home in your area. That is huge. The appraiser is not going into your home and saying, you know, and adding up all your all of the things in your home and saying this is what it's worth. The appraiser is going and taking pictures, getting a layout, getting an idea of that home, and then going back to their office and comparing it to three to five other homes in your area that have sold within the last six months. So that's very important. It's also not a thing where it's listed. A lot of people will say, hey, my neighbor listed their home for this amount. Listed properties that have not sold are not counted as comparables. So it's always good to have that extra data when you're talking about appraisals because, as you and I have seen in the past, one bad appraisal on a property can lead to a nightmare um, of situations to come. There's um, there's a situation that I think a few people are you know making note of. Um, they call it house hoarding, but it's people when they upsize, they're not selling you know the condo or the smaller places that they have. They actually some of them are rolling them into investment properties or turning them into rentals. Are you seeing a little bit more of this in the marketplace? Yeah, you know, I mean, I just I I think Todd that we you know the the idea and of course over the course of this pandemic. You know, a lot of people have a lot of time to sit and reevaluate their situations with respect to their real estate. They're seeing a lot of their friends and their family doing well renting properties out. And so I definitely feel like I've seen and, and, and it seems like a lot of people are certainly much more educated than they were five to 10 years ago. I mean, you've got companies like yours, you know, and other investment companies as well, but yours in particular, where you're really educating um, your customer base and letting them know, you know, that, hey, this is something that you can plan for your future. This isn't just a home from, the, you know, in my opinion, and in your opinion, obviously, in Canada, it's no longer just shelter. You know, your home in Canada is an investment. 
Um, and I know certainly people would say, well, Dave, that's, that's common, but more so than any time in the history of our country, uh, your home is an investment now. You have to be looking at it not just as the place that you go and you rest your head at night and you raise your family, but it is a massive. And if, if it, I would be surprised if it's not most people's largest asset. Um, you know, people talk about RSPs, GICs, you know, stocks, everything. I would beg to differ that I think most Canadians, a uh, large amount of Canadians, their biggest investment is now actually their home. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of the complaints where we can't get, you know, the first time home buyers, it's becoming out of reach. And one of the things I've been encouraging people is that if you buy an investment property in about five years, you can refinance it and give your kids the down payment they're going to need. So, you know, it, it, it's not out of reach. What we do is we just have to rethink how we're going to do this. And if you get everybody started early enough, you know what, they're going to benefit from being able to have the right investment real estate. Uh, you, you, you bring up a fantastic point. I mean, with the prices of the homes these days, uh, I can tell you from our data that more and more and more, like the highest percentage of people are taking money out to give to family members to help them purchase. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you've got the prices of the homes today, and we know that the incomes have not moved up accordingly with the price of the homes you know, the younger generation are finding it difficult to buy or, you know, not necessarily to buy, but to qualify. Um, so what we're noticing is we're having a lot of parents that we're working with the parents to refinance their homes, to take out money so that their child can purchase uh, the property that they need. That is a really, really big thing that's gone on. And I would say it was starting before the pandemic, but it's actually became a really, really, really big thing after and during the pandemic. Excellent. Well, listen, Dave, always a pleasure having you on the show. What's the best way for our listeners to reach you? Thanks, Todd. Uh, they can get us in touch with us uh, by phone, one 684 8326 or just shoot us an email. Our email address is info at bmselect.ca, and we would be happy to work with any of your listeners. Excellent. Thanks so much, Dave. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Todd. Take care. Always great to have Dave Butler on with me. And uh, I also want to thank my other guest, John Pasalas. He's the president of Realosophy Real Estate. And you know what? Um, it's interesting. Uh, some of the numbers, you know, you should really follow uh, John if you can. And um, he he does break things down really, really well. So a great guy to follow if you want to get the, the nitty gritty numbers out of real estate. So that's a wrap for this week. You know, it's amazing how quickly it goes by, you know, for especially the first week of August. It's gone. Bye-bye. And uh, I do want to thank Ian. He's made it simple for me as he does every single week. I want to thank you for tuning in, making us the number one real estate talk show. And of course, I will be back next Sunday at noon as usual. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.